Thank you. Go the other way. <laughs> We're still trying to maintain our distance here. Hello, everybody. Good to see you. I'm like trying to host a watch party and switch over to my timer here. So let's see if this works. If if it dies, sorry about that. Um, I'm so glad to be with you. My name is Dave. Uh, I'm the senior pastor here at the church and enjoy uh, most weeks getting to teach from the scriptures because we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. And so we're finishing up a series that we started really before all the weird coronavirus stuff happened. God had called our church to focus on prayer, and that's been really helpful for us, focusing on personal prayer, private prayer, prayer alone with our families as well. And so this is the last week we've been calling this series, Talking with God, the Ancient Art of Prayer. And so as we've looked through the series, we've been looking at key passages in the Bible that talk about prayer, how to pray, looking at lament, looking at celebration, looking at the ideas of worship and grieving and how to pray like a child and how to pray through the powerlessness that we feel. So this final week, we're calling it Pray like a child. Pray like a child. We're going to be in Luke chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Luke chapter 11. Um, It's one of the first books of the New Testament in our Bibles towards the end of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. So Luke chapter 11. And there are two things that work together in this passage. One is it kind of shows us how to pray. And we want to admit up front that it's hard to know what to say. It's hard to know how to talk To God. And so we're coming full circle again, just back to the basics of prayer. What is prayer? As we've titled our series, it's basically talking with God. Um, But it's hard for all of us to do this, and we want to admit that. And as we look at this, I want to remember a time when I was a child. I don't know if you ever remember going through something like this when you were a kid, but I can remember as a kid, four years old, five years old, adults asking me how I was doing, asking me my name, trying to start a conversation with me. And when you're four or five years old, you're not very good at having conversations with adults. And so I can remember being really confused about that. And finally, my older brother and sister, my mom, my dad, they they taught me, well, there's some basic things you can say. And they gave me a few ideas. And there was one form that they gave me. They said, well, you can say, I'm doing okay. And I remember that I really latched onto that. That was then what I said to everybody. I can remember saying it for years and years, but I remember having this sense of relief of like, oh, now, now I know how to talk to people. I'm okay. How are you doing? I'm okay. And I said that again and again and really carried it with me for years. Well, hopefully we'll give you more to say than just I'm okay. We're going to teach you this morning how to talk to God. And so I want to look at Luke 11 and look at what Jesus teaches us here about praying like a child. So we'll read Luke 11, starting in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything 
because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, his shamelessness, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let me pray for our time in Luke 11. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would see you in it, that we would hear you in it. We admit so many distractions, so many disruptions to the way we normally do life, the weirdness of of gathering and watching a sermon through a screen, Um, the strangeness of of all that's going on, the uncertainty. And so, God, will you clear our heads? Will you speak to us? Will your spirit open our our eyes and our hearts? Will you join us? Will you meet us here? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke 11, as I said, the, the big idea is that we would pray like a child. And so as we move through the text, we see three really clear phases in this text in verses 1 through 13. And the first phase is that Jesus gives them a form, right? They say, Jesus, will you, will you teach us how to pray? John taught his disciples how to pray, right? So this would be a common thing in the first century Jewish tradition and other religions as well. If you had a religious community, they would give you a pattern and a form to pray. And so they're asking for one. Jesus, will you give us a form? Which is interesting to note, they've been following Jesus for a while and he has not yet given them a form, Right? So what we see here is a tension of, well, forms are good, but they're not everything. So he hasn't yet given them a form, but when they ask for a form, he gives them a form. The second thing that we're going to see is that we are to pray shamelessly. In the text I read, it said, pray with impudence. Um, The idea is that we don't have to be embarrassed to ask God for stuff. So we're going to pray shamelessly. And then finally, as we understand praying like a child, we're going to see that we pray by grace. And that's that last thing where he talks about the fatherhood of God, God's goodness to us, that we can trust him. So three big ideas, pray with a form, pray shamelessly, and pray by grace. So first of all, we're going to look at the idea that we should pray with a form. It's okay to have a pattern. Now, just to clarify, in the Christian world, there are kind of two general extremes. I'm I'm way oversimplifying here, but two general extremes. There's the really highly structured kind, and then there's the uh, spontaneous kind of Christianity. We lean more towards on the spontaneous end of things, uh, but we would say there's nothing wrong with structures. There's nothing wrong with forms. Sometimes in religious practices called a liturgy, um, sometimes you could just call it a order of worship or a formula, a form is the word I'm using here, a structure. Um, there's nothing wrong with this. Jesus gives them a form. Um, w- when you're raising children, you'll give them a form to follow. You'll teach them things to do. And it's important as we mature that we learn to separate, like, what's the important part of form? What's the principle of the form? And what are the things that are negotiable or that we can translate? Here, Jesus gives us a prayer. We call it sometimes the Lord's Prayer. What's interesting is that the Lord's Prayer shows up in two different Gospels in two different occasions with two different sets of words. So for Jesus, what we notice right off the bat is that the exact words are not really that important because Jesus teaches them two different times to do this in two different ways. Does that make sense? 
And so there's a general form, but it's not a down-to-the-exact-word scientific form where if you mess up a word, everything's in trouble, right? He's just giving us a loose form, a loose structure to follow. So what are the big ideas of this section? Well, he was teaching them how to pray. It says in verse 1, Jesus teaches how to pray as John taught his disciples. So he said to them, okay, we'll do it this way. Some basic things that he starts off with. Father, hallowed be your name. What does that mean? Well, the only reason this translation says hallowed is because it's trying to connect with tradition, right? But the word is holy, uh, set apart, other. So you don't have to use the word hallowed because you never use that word in English in any other circumstance. You might use the word holy. You might use the word special. It's okay to translate this prayer. I really encourage you to buy this thing called a thesaurus. Have you ever heard of a thesaurus? Um, or you could just use your computer or your phone to do this. But you can translate. You can look up synonyms, other words, right? Hallowed, holy, special, sanctified. What he's saying is, say to God, God, may your name be set apart and special in my life. Father, hallowed be your name. And then he says, your kingdom come. That desires that we want our world to look like God's ideals. God has revealed to us his will in scripture, justice and love and care for each other. And we are to live that out in our own lives and try to encourage that to be lived out around us. So we pray that, God, may your kingdom come. And then in verse three, he says, give us each day our daily bread. Give us our daily bread. What does that mean? That means we can, we can ask God for the regular daily stuff we need. God, keep us alive. God, feed us. God, protect us from the coronavirus. God, be with our sick friends. It's okay to pray those things. It's not just okay. It's right and good. It's the form that Jesus tells us to pray. And then in verse 4, he says, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So he's saying, pray for forgiveness. Forgive us, Lord, for we forgive those who are indebted to us. Both of those things go together. And Jesus says this in many different ways. The New Testament says this in many different ways. But the summary is this. Because God forgives us, we forgive others. There's a key verse in uh, Colossians 3 that talks about that. Forgive each other as God in Christ forgave you, right? So that's the standard foundation idea. God forgave us. We see that on the cross. Jesus died on the cross to pay the pay the price for our sins. So he took our place. He's our substitute. So because God forgives us, what does that mean in our lives? Well, that means we forgive others. And this comes out in a lot of different parables of Jesus. Jesus often pushes it from the other side where Jesus will say, if you don't forgive people, that means you don't really believe that God has forgiven you. So he usually attacks it from the other side, from the negative to to press religious people and say, hey, do you, do you really love God? Do you really understand that he's forgiven you? Because if you did, you'd be forgiving other people. And so we pray both of these things. God, forgive me, and also God, help me to forgive others. And then the final ask in this prayer, this format, is lead us not into temptation, right? So help us avoid suffering, trial, temptation. Help us uh, get by. Help us survive. Help us thrive. Um, but this is a tension in the Christian life. We know sometimes God allows us to go through suffering and asks us to depend on him through it. Uh, there's this famous passage in, in 2 Corinthians 12 where God tells Paul really clearly, okay, I, in this circumstance, I'm not going to take away the difficulty in your life, but I'm going to ask you to, to depend on me, to trust me, to allow my power to work through you in your your weakness, in your difficulty. Um, so we've got these big ideas, this form that we follow. And again, I would encourage you to, to memorize this prayer. 
exactly word for word, that's helpful to have a format, but I'd also encourage you to translate it. Am I saying, am I speaking out of both sides of my face? Yes. <laughs> Do both. Because as you translate it, it'll help you to internalize the principles of the prayer. But as you memorize it, it helps you give a, get a place to start. Um, think about, imagine how we teach children to pray. We teach children to clasp their hands when they pray, right? If you have children at home, children, I can't really see you, but raise your hand if your parents ever taught you to fold your hands together when you pray. Did that ever happen? Yeah, some of us? I know I was taught to pray that way. Now, here's a, here's a funny thing. Um, imagine this, picture this if you will. I think I grabbed a picture of, of kids folding their hands. Did we show that? Yeah. Here's a picture of kids folding their hands when they pray. Okay, here's the thing. There's not a Bible verse that says children or adults must fold their hands when they pray, right? That's merely a form we give children to help them. It's a form we give adults to help them. It's, it's a way of focusing our attention. It's a way of symbolizing, hey, I can't fix this with my own hands. I'm going to fold my own hands and trust God to fix this. I'm going to go before the Lord. Uh, there are biblical postures that are prescribed in Scripture for prayer, like the raising of hands and the bowing of yourself. Um, but this one particular one, folding hands, it's not in the Bible. It doesn't say we have to fold our hands, right? But it's a helpful posture. It's a way of bowing, which is prescribed in Scripture. So again, we have to understand the difference between what the Bible commands and how we pray and then the great freedom that we have. And forms are okay. Here's a biblical form in this text in Luke 11 that we're given, often called the Lord's Prayer. Another great form that we're given, another great prayer to memorize, would be Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I really encourage you to memorize these two sections of Scripture and begin praying them over and over again in your life. It'll it'll give you a format to follow. It'll give, give you shape and form to your prayer. It'll help you. And then the other side of this that I want us to think about is how our culture, the worldview of the way we're raised, pushes against this kind of praying. Um, in the book, Paul Miller's A Praying Life, I've been recommending this book many times. I'll show this one to you again. In A Praying Life, he talks about how cynicism in our world and secularism in our world shapes us, how it tells us that God is not really there. Like If you're constantly bombarded with that liturgy in society, if you're constantly bombarded uh, with that as the truth that you're told over and over again, it's going to be able to. It's going to begin to shape the way you pray. And so Miller warns against that, and he says, "Think about the form of the the Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23. Think about the format of that prayer. If secularism is true, if the cynicism in our heart is true, then that means we have to completely eliminate this caring father. We have to completely eliminate this." father that takes care of his children, the shepherd that cares for his sheep. And so Miller gives us an example of what this would look like. Th- these are the words of Psalm 23 without references to what God, our shepherd, God, our father does. Here it is. My, I shall be in want. Me, me, my soul, me. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear evil. Me, 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 in the presence of my enemies, my head, my cup, all the days of my life, I. Miller says that that's the prayer that secularism is teaching us to pray. That's the the prayer that cynicism is teaching us to pray, that I'm on my own, that God has has abandoned me. Watch out in this time of fear. 
in this time of panic, during a disease, during a pandemic, watch out that we don't fall back to the religion of our culture that tells us that God isn't there and he never really was there. I want to challenge you to believe the truth of the Lord's Prayer and the truth of Psalm 23, that God is a good Father that cares for us and we can talk to him and we can share with him our need, that he's a good shepherd that will lead us to still waters and green pastures and we can call out to him, we can depend on him. Pray these forms, pray these patterns that God has given to us. It'll help us to relearn how to talk to him, to relearn the truth that God actually is there, that he's a father we can trust and we are his children, that he's a shepherd that will lead us and we are his sheep. So pray these formats, pray Psalm 23, pray the Lord's Prayer from Luke 11 or from Matthew 6 is the longer form of it. I also want to give you a couple of other prayer guides. I've got a really long one that I would recommend. You can find this online. I think you have to go to the Rabbit Room. Do you know where you order this? Is it Rabbit Room? Rabbit Room? It's called Every Moment Holy. The website is the Rabbit Room, but really highly recommend this to you. This takes the idea of normal, boring, everyday life, turning all the little things we go through, like changing a diaper or cooking a meal, and and capturing that and recognizing that God is in every moment and he wants to talk to us. And so there are these kind of beautiful, old-fashioned, liturgical-sounding prayers, yet in modern language that helps us to see God loves me, God cares for me, he's there in every aspect of life. So it's got a prayer for drinking coffee, a prayer for going shopping, a, a prayer for work, a prayer for uh, you know mopping and cleaning. So it's a really helpful book to kind of help connect those dots, to bridge that gap that, again, we've been taught in a culture of secularism and cynicism that, that there's a divide and that God isn't there. This helps to reconnect that, no, every moment is holy and God is there in every moment. We also have this short guide called Targeted Prayers. We have physical copies here, and we pass these out a lot at our church. I think you can also find them online uh, at harvestprayer.com, but it's Targeted Prayers for your church. It just gives you a simple, short prayer for every day of the month. And so this is a, a kind of shorter, more um, more minimized kind of daily prayer guide. And of course, the books I've been recommending it again and again and again, A Praying Life by Paul Miller, Praying Backwards by Brian Chapel. encourage you to find these books and it's okay to find a format. Again, going back to the main idea, it's good to pray with a form. It's good to pray with guidance. And we want to balance between these two ditches of form is everything. That's one extreme. If you grew up in a really highly structured um, way of doing religion, sometimes we can default into this. The form is everything, and we lose the soul of it. But the other extreme is form is bad, and that's just simply biblically not true. That's, a, that's an overreaction. So pray these forms. The next point that we want to see as Jesus takes them through this teaching on prayer is that we should pray shamelessly. Pray shamelessly. We'll see this in verses 5 through 10. So Jesus gave them a formula for prayer. He gave them the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer here in Luke 11. Now he's going to give them a little parable and say, hey, you might feel like you're annoying God when you ask him for stuff. Do you ever feel that way? Um, I think especially in circles where we have a high view of God's greatness, a high view of God's sovereignty, we tend towards this idea that God is great, God is sovereign, and he already knows what he's doing. I want to leave him alone, right? Well, Jesus here counters that and says, we should pray shamelessly. The, the word in the text is impudence. It's a kind of hard word to translate. And part of the reason it's hard to translate is because Jesus is in a sense saying, pray in a way that would be negative in any other situation, right? 
Jesus is saying something like, be annoying in how you pray, right? Why this is confusing is, in reality, Jesus doesn't want you to annoy your heavenly Father. He's trying to teach us that, yeah, you might annoy other people if you bang on their door in the middle of the night, but you'll never annoy God. Do you understand that? You'll never annoy God. You will never have shame brought on you by God when you go to him and ask him for help. So here's, here's the parable again. He said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Now in first century standards, this is embarrassing and nobody would do this. Nobody would bang on somebody's door in the middle of the night, right? You just wouldn't do it. It's annoying. Just think about it in today's standards, right? Like a friend came to visit and I want to fix him a cup of decaf coffee. I don't have any decaf coffee so we can sit down at midnight and chat before we go to bed. So I'm going to go next door, wake up my neighbor and say, hey, do you have any decaf coffee? It's just crazy, right? It's shameful. It's embarrassing. What Jesus is saying, yeah, what seems ridiculous in our human world is not ridiculous with God. Keep asking. Keep running to him. Keep banging on his door. So he continues and he says, Verse 7, he will answer from within, don't bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything, right? He's like, yeah, that's what's going to happen. You go ask your friend for decaf at 2 a.m., he's going to say, leave me alone, right? But then Jesus says, I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. What's Jesus saying there? Finally, the guy will give in because if you keep banging on his door, he's like, all right, I'll give you some coffee. I'll give you some bread. Just leave me alone. I want to go back to bed, right? And so Jesus is saying, yeah, because of his impudence, whose impudence? The impudence, the shamelessness of the one banging on the door. And this is this kind of arguing that Jesus does again and again from the lesser to the greater. If a bad human being or a non-generous neighbor will be generous when you twist their arm and you keep banging on the door, how much more a God who has everything and who sees you as his dear child and he loves you? So Jesus is saying that here in the text. He says, I tell you though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, the one knocking, he'll rise and give him whatever he needs. Verse 9, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Now he's going to give one more parable to clarify that he's not actually talking about anything you can possibly imagine will be granted to you, like a genie in the bottle that has to give you what you want if you bang with enough shamelessness. It's it's in the context of a God who loves you and knows what's best for you. So is God going to sometimes say no or say later? Of course. And that's the the context of Paul asking God to remove this difficulty in his life, this thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul asks again and again, and, and God says, no, I'm leaving it there for you. Depend on me. Depend on me. God says to Paul, depend on my power, depend on my grace, and, and I will lead you through this weakness and difficulty. So Ask, seek, knock, and God will answer. God doesn't always answer the way we want him to. God doesn't always answer in the speed we want him to. But don't stop praying. Be shameless in your praying. Keep 
banging on his door and asking for bread in the middle of the night. There's an illustration of this years ago in a sitcom that I, I can't even really recommend, but it was a famous sitcom called Seinfeld. And in the show Seinfeld, uh, there was this one scene where Jerry makes friends with this Mets baseball player. I think his name was Keith Hernandez. Um, and they get to be friends. Um, and Keith asks Jerry to help him move. And what's funny about it is Jerry makes this whole big thing about how really um, Keith went too far, too fast in their relationship. And it's kind of making fun of like a, a male-female relationship or a dating relationship where you try to get too close too fast. Um, and the idea is you can't ask a friend to help you move when you've just gotten to know them, right? Helping you move is like a serious commitment. That's like a really big thing to ask of someone. So again, it's an illustration of what Jesus is saying here. In our human relationships, there are things we just don't ask because it's just not done. It's inappropriate. But that does not apply to our relationship with God because he is a God of grace and because he is a God who tells us that he is our heavenly father. And so as a child, we can shamelessly run to him and ask for anything we need. So number one application is come to have faith in God as the one friend who will never shame you when you ask him for something. He might say later, he might even say no, but he will never shame you. You don't have to be ashamed going to God in prayer. You can ask him anything. You can bang on his door anytime, day and night. So Jesus is encouraging us to keep knocking, to keep asking, to keep seeking, and God will be there for us. So I want to give us a very specific prayer in this time. We're in a weird time of global craziness with this pandemic, and we need to recognize that a lot of us don't know what the future holds. So we need to ask and seek and knock that God would meet us in this craziness and allow us to be his people and his presence in our communities and in our neighborhoods. God, show us how we can be your servants in this city. Show us how we can love our neighbors because you loved us first. Show us how we can be generous and share bread in the middle of the night because that's the way you treat us. So God, will you prepare us as a people? That's what we need to be praying right now. And more than that, we need to recognize not just do we need to be there for the community, but we need to maintain that relationship with God. We need to go deeper with God ourselves in this time. Um, from Tim Keller's book on prayer, he talks about a crazy time in their life with him and his wife right after 9-11. So they had a church in New York City. Right after 9-11 happened, his wife was struggling with Crohn's disease. 9-11 had just happened. They were trying to lead this gigantic church. And then Tim got cancer. In the middle of, the, of all this, his wife said, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of all we're facing. I'm certainly not. She said, Tim, we've got to pray together. We've got to pray together every night. And if we don't do this, we're not going to survive. And I want to encourage you to have that same kind of seriousness in your prayer life. We're not going to make it if we don't continue to pray. And, and don't let yourself fall for the lie that prayer is not doing anything. Prayer is the greater work. Prayer is something real. And be shameless in your running to God with your needs. So the last thing I want us to see now is that we are to pray by grace. We are to pray by grace. This is the shortest little section, verses 11, 12, and 13. He says in verse 11, What father among you, 
If his son asks for a fish, well, instead of a fish, give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So here he is saying that we are evil and we still know how to give good gifts to our children. Think about that. Jesus is saying, hey, you guys are evil, you do bad things, you're, you're often terrible fathers, yet you still know how to be generous and take care of your kids. How much more will God treat us by his grace? How much more will God treat us as a perfect heavenly father? I've said this before, if you had a bad father, you had a distant father, you had trouble with your father, the whole reason that you even know that there was something wrong with your earthly father is because God has hardwired inside of all of us a knowledge of what the perfect father should be. And God is that perfect father. He's the perfect standard that all of us fail to measure up to. And so Jesus says, hey, even you terrible earthly fathers know how to be kind to your kids. How much more God? So another argument from the lesser to the greater that Jesus uses often. And so here's a symbol I'd like to burn into your brain for this. It's the time clock. Um, Many of you younger people have never used a time clock, but you might do it digitally at a job where you sign in for your hours and that you get paid for the hours you work. And what we need to understand is we do not relate to God with a time clock. And if we do, the wages that we earn are death. There are two ways to relate to God. Either we relate to him with the wage system or we relate to him by grace. Those are the two ways to relate to God. It's, it's clarified in many different places. In uh, Romans 5 and 6, it talks about this basically two tribes of humanity, right? We're in the tribe of, of Adam and Eve. And if we're in that tribe, then we're trying to work off our sin. We're trying to work for our glory. We're trying to work for our salvation and do it on our own. And we just earn death through our sin. Or we can be in the tribe of Jesus Christ. And by faith, we can be one with him and trust the grace that God gives us as a heavenly father through Christ. So this is summarized in Romans 6.23. It says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So the question here is, how do you relate to God? Do you see God as, well, he'll only love me and he'll only bless me if I perform for him. He'll only love me. He'll only bless me if I do something really awesome. He'll only bless me and he'll only love me if I do something really big and amazing. Or he'll only bless me and love me if I never make a mistake. Well, the biblical story is all of us have failed to perform. All of us have failed in many different ways. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we can either admit that and accept God's grace, or we can keep trying to do it on our own in separation from God. This text and many others encourage us to relate to God as a loving father. And here's, here's what's really beautiful. When we think about how we relate to God, what he gives us is his Holy Spirit. What it's saying here is he gives us himself. So sometimes we run shamelessly to God and we ask him to change our situation. God, I'm sick, fix it. And sometimes he says, no, not yet, but I'll give you myself. Sometimes we're in economic trouble and we'll say, God, I need help. And we can pray that. And we should pray for our daily bread and we should shamelessly ask him for anything we need. And sometimes he says, No, I can't fix that situation right now, or I'm not going to for whatever reason, but I will give you myself. And that's the final and most important gift that Jesus is saying that we receive from a good father as his children, is we receive the gift of his own presence in the Holy Spirit. 
He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? So a relationship of grace leads to praying by grace. Do you see that? Having a relationship as a child of God, I'm a child of God because of his grace, that leads us to being able to pray by his grace. He says, recognize that your heavenly father is good and generous beyond any earthly father. And when you realize that, when you believe that, when you trust that, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, John 1 says, he gave the right to become children of God. Born not of some human decision or flesh or blood, but born of God. Have you trusted in Jesus in that way yet? That's what he is inviting us to do, to trust that God loves us and he's given us Jesus. And so he seals that with his Holy Spirit. And so if we understand that relationship, then we can pray by grace. And then what Romans 8 says about this is that even when we don't have the words to say, even when the forms fail us, the Holy Spirit indwells us and gives us the words to pray, helps us to groan and cry out to God even when we don't know what to say. And so I want to finish here, um, wrap up and kind of summarize everything we've been saying. Going back to the idea of saying that I was okay. Repeatedly over the years, I began to say that. I I talked about this at the very beginning when I was a kid. I never knew what to say to grown-ups when they'd ask me weird questions. And I, I remember falling back again and again on saying, I'm okay. I'm okay. But you know what? Over the years, life got more complicated, and that became less and less true to say. And so the beauty of Christianity, the beauty of our faith, is it encompasses the reality of, of what Jack Miller is quoted often as saying is, cheer up, you are far worse off than you think. But cheer up, you are more loved than you ever imagined. The, the balance of those two things that that in the end gives us a spiritual sense of okay, but just saying I'm okay doesn't really capture that, right? And so I want to come back to the big idea that we should pray like a child and, and end with Romans 8. Um, and this is what helped me to move past the lie of saying I was okay, even when everything was falling apart in my life. So we'll end with this little quote from, from Romans 8. Romans 8 says that the Spirit actually enables us to be children of God. It says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are children of God because of what God has done for us through Jesus, and the Spirit that he gives us as a good father is what allows us to understand that and cry out to him. Paul goes on in Romans 8 and says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul goes on in Romans 8, and I can, can encourage you to, to learn Romans 8 and pray Romans 8 as well. The long passage that talks about the groaning that we and all of creation are going through. The groaning of tornadoes and catastrophes and disease and pandemics. But as we groan and as we long for God to fix everything that is here, his spirit allows us to remember that we are his children and that we are heirs and that he's going to use us even in the midst of suffering to be a blessing to our friends and our neighbors. Let me pray for us. 
God, we thank you that you love us, and we pray that you would help us in a crazy time to remember your presence with us by your Spirit. We pray that you would remind us that you love us, that we are your children, that you are our good, good Father, we can trust in you, and that that would translate into a prayer life, a faithful dependence, that we would run to you with every need, that we would pray to you shamelessly. And God, we also pray that this would teach us to be good neighbors, to be good citizens, to help those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.